Charles Darwin's Religious Life, A Sketch in Spiritual Biography, Part 1, by B.B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. There was a great deal of discussion in the newspapers about the time of Mr. Darwin's death concerning his religious opinions, provoked in part by the publication of a letter written by him in 1879 to a Jena student in reply to inquiries as to his views with reference to a revelation and a future life, in part by a report published by Drs. Averling and Buchner of an interview which they had had with him during the last year of his life. Of course, the appearance of the elaborate life and letters by his son has now put an end to all possible doubt as to so simple a matter. Mr. Darwin describes himself as living generally and more and more as he grew older in a state of mind which, with much fluctuation of judgment from a cold theism down the scale, never reaching, however, a dogmatic atheism, would be best described as agnosticism. But the life and letters does far more for us than merely determine this fact. In the three huge volumes which are thus put forth to embalm the philosopher's name, as Blackwood somewhat flippantly expresses it, he is observed like one of his own specimens under the microscope, and every peculiarity recorded, for all the world as if a philosopher were as important as a mollusk, though we can scarcely hope that a son of Darwin's would commit himself to such a revolutionary view. The result of this excessively minute description, and all the more because it is so lacking in proportion and perspective, is that we are put in possession of abundant material for tracing the evolution of his life and opinions with an accuracy and fullness of detail seldom equalled in the literature of biography. For example, although the book was not written in order to depict Mr. Darwin's inward life, it is quite possible to arrange out of the facts it gives a fairly complete history of his spiritual changes. And this proves unexpectedly interesting. Such men as Bunyan and Augustine and St. Paul himself have opened to us their spiritual growth from darkness into light, and made us familiar with every phase of the struggle by which a spirit moves upward to the hope of glory. Such a writer as Rousseau lifts for us a corner of the veil that hides from view the depths of an essentially evil nature. But we have lacked any complete record of the experiences of an essentially noble soul about which the shades of doubt are slowly gathering. This it is that Mr. Darwin's life gives us. No one who reads The Life and Letters will think of doubting the unusual sweetness of Mr. Darwin's character. In his school days, he is painted by his fellow students as cheerful, good-tempered, and communicative. At college, we see him, through his companion's eyes, as the most genial, warm-hearted, generous, and affectionate of friends, with sympathies alive for all that was good and true, and a cordial hatred for everything false or vile or cruel or mean or dishonorable, in a word as one preeminently good and just and lovable. A co-laborer with him in the high studies of his mature life sums up his impression of his whole character in equally striking words. Those who knew Charles Darwin, he says, most intimately are unanimous in their appreciation of the unsurpassed nobility and beauty of his whole character. In him there was no other side. Not only was he the philosopher who has wrought a greater revolution in human thought within a quarter of a century than any man of our time, or perhaps of any time. But as a man, he exemplified in his own life that true religion, which is deeper, wider, and loftier than any theology. 
for this not only inspired him with the devotion to truth, which was the master passion of his great nature, but made him the most admirable husband, neighbor, and master, the genuine lover not only of his fellow man, but of every creature. Mr. Darwin himself doubted whether the religious sentiment was ever strongly developed in him, but this opinion was written in his later years, and the context shows that there is an emphasis upon the word sentiment. There was, on the other hand, a truly religious colouring thrown over all his earlier years, and the fruits of religion never left his life. But nevertheless, there gradually faded out from his thought all purely religious concepts, and there gradually died out of his heart all the higher religious sentiments, together with all the accompanying consolations, hopes, and aspirations. On the quiet stage of this amiable life, there is played out before our eyes the tragedy of the death of religion out of a human soul. The spectacle is nonetheless instructive that it is offered in the case of one before whom we gladly doff our hats in true and admiring reverence. The first clear glimpse that we get of the future philosopher as a child is a very attractive one. He seems to have been sweet-tempered, simple-hearted, conscientious, not without his childish faults, but with a full supply of childish virtues. Here is a pretty picture, being sent at about the age of nine years to Mr. Butler's school, situated about a mile from his home. He often ran home in the longer intervals between the callings over and before locking up at night. I remember in the early part of my school life, he writes, that I often had to run very quickly to be in time, and from being a fleet runner was generally successful, but when in doubt I prayed earnestly to God to help me, and I well remember that I attributed my success to the prayers and marveled how generally I was aided. Thus heaven lay about him in his infancy. But he does not seem to have been a diligent student, and his school life was not altogether profitable. His subsequent stay at Edinburgh was no more so, and before he reached the age of twenty, it seemed clear that his heart was not in the profession of medicine to which he had been destined. In these circumstances, his father, who was a nominal member of the Church of England, took a step which seemed, from his point of view, no doubt, quite natural, and proposed that his son should become a clergyman. He was properly vehement, the son writes, against my turning into an idle sporting man, as if this was a sufficient reason for the contemplated step. The son himself was, however, more conscientious. I asked for some time to consider, he writes, as from what little I had heard or thought on the subject, I had scruples about declaring my belief in all the dogmas of the Church of England, though otherwise I liked the thought of being a country clergyman. Accordingly, I read with care Pearson on the Creed and a few other books on divinity, and as I did not then in the least doubt the strict and literal truth of every word in the Bible, I soon persuaded myself that our creed must be literally accepted. This step led to residence at Cambridge, where, however, again the time was mostly wasted. The influences under which he there fell, moreover, were not altogether calculated to quicken his reverence for the high calling to which he had devoted himself. The way in which the service was conducted in chapel shows that the dean, at least, was not overzealous. I have heard my father tell, that is, Mr. Francis Darwin, who is writing, how at evening chapel the dean used to read alternate verses of the Psalms without making even a pretense of waiting for the congregation to take their share. And when the lesson was a lengthy one, he would rise and go on with the canticles after the scholar had read 15 or 20 verses. Nor were his associates at Cambridge 
always all that could be desired from his passion for sport, he got into a sporting set, including some dissipated, low-minded young men, with whom he spent days and evenings of which he afterward felt ashamed. Fortunately, he had other companions also of a higher stamp, and among them preeminently Professor Henslow, who united in his own person the widest scientific learning and deepest piety, and with whom he happily became quite intimate, gaining from him more than he could express. Best of all, Henslow was accustomed to let his light shine and talked freely on all subjects, including his deep sense of religion. Accordingly, as we are not surprised to learn, it was with him that Mr. Darwin wished to read divinity. Not that he was even now ready to enter with spirit upon his preparation for his future work. A touching letter to his friend Fox, written in 1829, on the occasion of the death of the latter's sister, shows that his heart at this time knew somewhat of the consolations of Christianity. I feel most sincerely and deeply for you, he writes, and all your family, but at the same time, as far as anyone can, by his own good principles and religion be supported under such a misfortune. You, I am assured, will know where to look for such support." and after so pure and holy a comfort as the Bible affords, I am equally assured how useless the sympathy of all friends must appear, although it be as heartfelt and sincere as I hope you believe me capable of feeling. But he still had conscientious scruples about taking orders. A fellow student writes, 1829, We had an earnest conversation about going into holy orders, and I remember his asking me with reference to the question put by the bishop in the ordination service, do you trust that you are inwardly moved by the Holy Spirit, etc., whether I could answer in the affirmative, and on my saying I could not, he said, neither can I, and therefore I cannot take orders. And certainly the lines of his intellectual interest were cast elsewhere. Only under the pressure of his approaching examinations was he led to anything like professional study. On such occasions, however, he showed that his mind was open to impression. In order to pass the BA examination, he writes, it was also necessary to get up Farley's evidences of Christianity and his moral philosophy. This was done in a thorough manner, and I am convinced that I could have written out the whole of the evidences with perfect correctness, but not, of course, in the clear language of Paley. The logic of this book, and I may add of his natural theology, gave me as much delight as did Euclid. The careful study of these works, without attempting to learn any part by rote, was the only part of the academical course which, as I then felt and as I still believe, was of the least use to me in the education of my mind. I did not at that time trouble myself about Paley's premises, and taking them on trust, I was charmed and convinced by the long line of argumentation. Despite such occasional pleasure in his work, when, on leaving Cambridge, the offer of a place in the Beagle expedition came, and his father objected to his taking it, that his proper clerical studies would be interrupted, Josiah Wedgwood was able to argue, If I saw Charles now absorbed in professional studies, I should probably think it would not be advisable to interrupt them. But this is not, and I think will not be the case with him. His present pursuit of knowledge is in the same track as he would have to follow in the expedition. By this representation his father's consent was obtained, although with that long-sighted wisdom which his son always regarded as his distinguishing characteristic, he considered it as again changing his profession, 
and so indeed it proved. Mr. Darwin's estimate of the sacredness of a clergyman's office improved somewhat above what it was when he was ready to undertake it, if he could sign the creed, because the life of a country clergyman offered advantages in a sporting way. He writes in 1835 to his friend Fox almost sadly, I dare hardly look forward to the future, for I do not know what will become of me. Your situation is above envy. I do not venture even to frame such happy visions. To a person fit to take the office, the life of a clergyman is a type of all that is respectable and happy. But though perhaps because his feeling toward the clerical office had grown to be so high, he no longer thought of entering it. He writes in his autobiography that this intention was never formally given up, but died a natural death. When, on leaving Cambridge, I joined the Beagle as naturalist. The letter to Fox, which has just been quoted, is a sufficient indication that it was not his Christian faith, but only his intention of taking orders that was dying out during the course of his five years' cruise. Other, like indications, are not lacking. We are therefore not surprised to read that, while on board the Beagle, I was quite orthodox, and I remember being heartily laughed at by some of the officers, though themselves orthodox, for quoting the Bible as an unanswerable authority on some point of morality. Nevertheless, his defection from Christianity was during these years silently and, as it were, negatively preparing in the ever-increasing completeness of his absorption in scientific pursuits, by which he was left little time for or interest in other things. And on his return to England, the working up of the immense mass of material which he had collected during his voyage claimed his attention even more exclusively than its collection had done. Thus he was given occasion to occupy himself so wholly with science that there was not only no time left to think of his former intention of entering the ministry, there was little time left to remember that there was a soul within him or a future life beyond the grave. Readers of the sad account which Mr. Darwin appended at the very end of his life, 1881, to his autobiographical notes of how, at about the age of 30 or thereabouts, his higher aesthetic tastes began to show atrophy, so that he lost his love for poetry, art, music, and his mind more and more began to take upon it the character of a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts, will not be able to resist the suspicion that this exclusive direction to one type of thinking was really, as he himself believed, injurious to his intellect, as well as enfeebling to his emotional nature, and lay at the root of his subsequent drift away from religion. It was an ominous conjunction that simultaneously, with the early progress of this curious and lamentable loss of the higher aesthetic tastes, a more positive influence was entering his mind, which was destined most seriously to modify his thought on divine things. In July 1837, he tells us, I opened my first notebook for facts in relation to the origin of species about which I had long reflected. The change that was passing over his views as to the manner in which species originate is illustrated by his biographer by the quote of a passage from his manuscript journal written in 1834 in which he freely speaks of creation, which was omitted from the printed journal, the proofs of which were completed in 1837, a fact which harmonizes with the change we know to have been proceeding in his views. We raise no question as to the compatibility of the Darwinian form of the hypothesis of evolution with Christianity. Mr. Darwin himself says that science, and in speaking of science he has evolution in mind, has nothing to do with Christ except in so far as the habit of scientific research makes a man cautious in admitting evidence. 
but if we confine ourselves to Mr. Darwin's own personal religious history, it is very clear that, whether on account of a peculiarity of constitution, or by an illogical train of reasoning, or otherwise, as he wrought out his theory of evolution, he gave up his Christian faith, nay, that his doctrine of evolution directly expelled his Christian belief. How it operated in so doing, it is not difficult dimly to trace. He was thoroughly persuaded, like Mr. Huxley, that, in its plain meaning, Genesis teaches creation by immediate, separate, and sudden fiats of God for each several species. And as he more and more convinced himself that species, on the contrary, originated according to natural law, and through a long course of gradual modification, he felt ever more and more that Genesis must go. But Genesis is an integral part of the Old Testament, and with the truth and authority of the Old Testament, the truth and authority of Christianity itself is inseparably bound up. Thus the doctrine of evolution, once heartily adopted by him, gradually undermined his faith, until he cast off the whole Christianity as an unproved delusion. The process was neither rapid nor unopposed. He speaks of his unwillingness to give up his belief, and of the slow rate at which unbelief crept over him, although it became at last complete. Doctors Buchner and Aveling report him as assigning the age of 40 years, 1849, as the date of the completion of the process. Of course, other arguments came gradually to the support of the original disturbing cause, to strengthen him in his new position, until his former acceptance of Christianity became almost incredible to him. A deeply interesting account is given of the whole process in the autobiography. During these two years, he says, meaning the years when his theory of evolution was taking shape in his mind, I was led to think much about religion. I had gradually come by this time, i.e., 1836 to 1839, to see that the Old Testament was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus. The question then continually rose before my mind, and would not be banished, is it credible that if God were now to make a revelation to the Hindus, he would permit it to be connected with the belief in Vishnu, Siva, etc., as Christianity is connected with the Old Testament? This appeared to me utterly incredible. Here is the root of the whole matter. His doctrine of evolution had antiquated for him the Old Testament record, but Christianity is too intimately connected with the Old Testament to stand as divine if the Old Testament be fabulous. Certainly, if the premises are sound, the conclusion is inevitable. Only both conclusion and premises must shatter themselves against the fact of the supernatural origin of Christianity. Once the conclusion was reached, however, bolstering arguments pressing directly against Christianity did not fail to make their appearance. The difficulty of proving miracles, their antecedent incredibility, the credulity of the age in which they profess to have been wrought, the unhistorical character of the Gospels, their discrepancies, man's proneness to religious enthusiasm, arguments, all of them, drawn from a sphere in which Mr. Darwin was not a master, and all of them, in reality, afterthoughts called in to support the doubts which were already dominating him. How impervious to evidence he at last became is naively illustrated by the words with which he closes his account of how he lost his faith. He says, he feels sure that he gave up his belief unwillingly. For I can well remember, often and often, inventing daydreams of old letters between distinguished Romans and manuscripts being discovered at Pompeii, or elsewhere, which confirmed in the most striking manner all that was written in the Gospels. But I found it more and more difficult, with free scope given to my imagination, to invent evidence which would suffice to convince me. 
when a man has reached a stage in which no conceivable historical evidence could convince him of the actual occurrence of a historical fact, we may cease to wonder that the almost inconceivable richness of the actual historical evidence of Christianity was insufficient to retain his conviction. He ceases to be a judge of the value of evidence, and that he has resisted it is no proof that it is resistible. It is only an evidence of such induration of believing tissue on his part that it is no longer capable of responding to the strongest reagents. Here then, approximately at the age of 40, we have reached the end of one great stage of Mr. Darwin's spiritual development. He was no longer a Christian. He no longer believed in a revelation. We see the effect in the changed tone of his speech. Mr. Brodie Innes reports him as saying that he did not attack Moses, and that he could not remember that he had ever published a word directly against religion or the clergy. But in his private letters of this later period, he certainly speaks with scant respect of Genesis and the clergy, if not also of religion, and he even gradually grew somewhat irreverent in his use of the name of God. We see the effect still more sadly in his loss of the consolations of religion. It is painful to compare his touching if somewhat formal and shallow letter of condolence to his friend Fox, written in 1829, which we have already quoted, with the hopeless grief of later letters of similar origin. He lost a daughter, whom he tenderly loved in 1851, and his only consolation was that she passed a short though joyous life. When Fox lost a child in 1853, his only appeal is to the softening influence of the passage of time. As you must know, he writes him, from your own most painful experiences, time softens and deadens in a manner truly wonderful, one's feelings and regrets. At first it is indeed bitter. I can only hope that your health and that of poor Mrs. Fox may be preserved, and that time may do its work softly, and bring you all together once again as the happy family which, as I can well believe, you so lately formed. What a contrast with the pure and holy comfort afforded by the Bible. Already he was learning the grief of those who sorrow as the rest who have no hope. Whether his habitual neglect of the Sunday rest and of the ordinances of religion was another effect of the same change, it is impossible to say, in our ignorance of his habits previous to the loss of his Christian faith. But throughout the whole period of his life at Down, we are told, weekdays and Sundays passed by alike, each with their stated intervals of work and rest, while his visits to the church were confined to a few rare occasions of weddings and funerals. But the loss of Christianity did not necessarily mean the loss of religion, and as a matter of fact, in yielding up revealed, Mr. Darwin retained a strong hold upon natural religion. There were yet God, the soul, the future life. The theory which he had elaborated as a sufficient account of the differences that exist between the several kinds of organic beings, including man, was, however, destined to work havoc in his mind with even the simplest tenets of natural religion. Again, we raise no question as to whether this drift was inevitable. It is enough for our present purpose that, in Mr. Darwin's case, it was actual. To understand how this was so, it is only necessary for us to remember that he had laid hold upon natural selection as the vera causa and sufficient account of all organic forms. His conception was that every form may vary indefinitely in all directions, 
and that every variation which is a gain to it in adaptation to its surroundings is necessarily preserved by that very fact through the simple reaction of the surroundings upon the struggle for existence. Any divine guidance of the direction of the variation seemed to him as much opposed to the one premise of the theory as any divine interference with the working of natural selection seemed to be opposed to the other. And he included all organic phenomena, as well mental and moral as physical, in the scope of this natural process. Thus to him God became an increasingly unnecessary and therefore an increasingly incredible hypothecation. The seriousness of this drift of thought makes it worthwhile to illustrate it somewhat in detail. During the whole time occupied in collecting material for and in writing The Origin of Species, Mr. Darwin was a theist, or, as he expressed it on one occasion, many years ago when I was collecting facts for The Origin, my belief in what is called a personal God was as firm as that of Dr. Pusey himself. The rate at which this firm belief passed away was slow enough for the process to occupy several years. He tells us that his thought on such subjects was never profound or long-continued. This was certainly not the fault, however, of his friends, for from the first publication of his development hypothesis, they plied him with problems that forced him to face the great questions of the relation of his views to belief in God and his modes of activity. We get the first glimpse of this in his correspondence with Sir Charles Lyell. That great geologist had suggested that we must assume a primeval creative power acting throughout the whole course of development, though not uniformly, in order to account for the supervening, say, of man at the end of the series. To this Mr. Darwin replies with a decided negative. We must, under present knowledge, he wrote, assume that creation of one or of a few forms in the same manner as philosophers assume the existence of a power of attraction without any explanation. But I entirely reject, as in my judgment quite unnecessary, any subsequent addition of new powers and attributes and forces, or of any principle of improvement except insofar as every character which is naturally selected or preserved is in some way an advantage or improvement, otherwise it would not have been selected. If I were convinced that I required such additions to the theory of natural selection, I would reject it as rubbish. If I understand you... The turning point in our difference must be that you think it impossible that the intellectual powers of a species should be much improved by the continued natural selection of the most intellectual individuals. To show how minds graduate, just reflect how impossible everyone has found it to define the difference in mind of man and the lower animals. The latter seem to have the very same attributes in a much lower stage of perfection than the lowest savage. I would give absolutely nothing for the theory of natural selection if it requires miraculous additions at any one stage of descent. I think embryology, homology, classification, etc. show us that all vertebrata have descended from one parent. How that parent appeared, we know not. If you admit, in ever so little a degree, the explanation which I have given of embryology, homology and classification, you will find it difficult to say. Thus far, the explanation holds good, but no further. Here we must call in the addition of new creative forces. A few days later he wrote again, I have reflected a good deal on what you say on the necessity of continued intervention of creative power. I cannot see this necessity, and its admission, I think, would make the theory of natural selection valueless. Grant a simple archetypal creature, 
like the mudfish or lepidosiren with the five senses and some vestige of mind and i believe natural selection will account for the production of every vertebrate animal let us weigh well the meaning to mr darwin's own thought of these strong assertions of the competency of natural selection to account for every distinguishing characteristic of living forms it meant to him first the assimilation of the human mind in its essence with the intelligence of the brutes and this meant the elimination of what we ordinarily mean by the soul he only needed to have given the five senses and some vestige of mind such as exists for instance in the mudfish to enable him by natural selection alone with the exclusion of all new powers and attributes and forces to account for the mental power of newton the high imaginings of milton the devout aspirations of a bernard how early he consciously formulated the extreme form of this conclusion it is difficult to say but we find him in eighteen seventy one thanking mr tyler for giving him new standing ground for it it is wonderful how you trace animism from the lower races up to the religious belief of the highest races it will make me for the future look at religion a belief in the soul etc from a new point of view accordingly the new view was incorporated in the descent of man published that same year and dr robert lewins seems quite accurately to sum up the ultimate opinion which he attained on this subject in the following words before concluding i may without violation of any confidence mention that both viva voce and in writing mr darwin was much less reticent to myself than in his letter to jena for in answer to the direct question i felt myself justified some years since in addressing that immortal expert in biology as to the bearing of his researches on the existence of an anima or soul in man he distinctly stated that in his opinion a vital or spiritual principle apart from inherent somatic energy had no more locus standi in the human than in the other races of the animal kingdom a conclusion that seems a mere corollary of or indeed a position tantamount with his essential doctrine of human and bestial identity of nature and genesis it was but a corollary to loss of belief in a soul secondly to lose belief also in immortality if we are one with the brutes in origin why not also in destiny mr darwin thought it base in his opponents to drag in immortality in objection to his theories but in his own mind he was allowing his theories to push immortality out his final position as to the future of man he writes in an interesting passage in the autobiographical notes written in eighteen seventy six he speaks there of immortality as a strong and instinctive belief but also of the intolerableness of the thought that the more perfect race of the future years shall be annihilated by the gradual cooling of the sun pathetically adding to those who fully admit the immortality of the human soul the destruction of our world will not appear so dreadful accordingly when writing to the yina student in eighteen seventy nine after saying that he did not believe that there ever had been a revelation he adds as for a future life every man must judge for himself between conflicting vague probabilities thirdly his settled conviction of the sufficiency of natural selection to account for all differentiations in organic forms deeply affected mr darwin's idea of god and of his relation to the world his notion at this time eighteen fifty nine while theistic appears to have been somewhat crassly deistic he seems never to have been able fully to grasp the conception of divine immanence 
but from the opening of his first notebook on species to the end of his days. He gives ever-repeated reason to the reader to fear that the sole conceptions of God in his relation to the universe, which were possible to him, were either that God should do all things without second causes, or having ordained second causes, should sit outside and beyond them and leave them to do all things without him. Beginning with this deistic conception which pushed God out of his works, it is perhaps not strange that he could never be sure that he saw him in his works, and when he could trace effects to a natural cause or group a body of phenomena under a natural law, this seemed to him equivalent to disproving the connection of God with them. The result was that the theistic proofs gradually grew more and more meaningless to him, until, at last, no one of them carried conviction to his mind. End of Charles Darwin's Religious Life, A Sketch in Spiritual Biography, Part 1, by B.B. Warfield.